Well, if you've been around church for any number of years, for any amount of time, you've probably heard mission, right? We go on mission trips. We, we serve on mission. We have, we have international missions. We have local missions, North American missions. Um, we are always talking about being on mission. We talk about the Great Commission, right, where Jesus called his disciples to himself, Matthew chapter 28, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? We teach them everything we know, and we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he promises to be with us until the end of the age. We have been, we have been commissioned by the King of Heaven himself, he says, all authority and power has been given to me, therefore I'm sending you. Every one of us, I know it might be cliche to say, might be cliche to hear, but each one of us, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are missionaries. Every one of us, you here today, if you know Jesus, you're a missionary. You don't have to move to Africa to be a missionary. You don't have to move to China. You don't have to go anywhere specifically. You don't even have to have the stamp of approval of a missions organization to be a missionary. Those things are important, and those are vocational callings. But each one of us at our core, if we know Jesus, we have been sent. As we are going, we make disciples. Everything that we do. And having spent a considerable amount of time, uh, you know, being a church planter and being involved in missions work, it's really easy for that word, mission, to become a buzzword or to become a word that just kind of, kind of floats through one ear and out the other because we get so used to hearing it. And we begin to make assumptions, well, what does it mean to be on mission? How should we be on mission? What does that look like? And that's what I hope to flesh out over the next couple of days. But today, we're going to look at the inward component of that. If we want to be on mission, if we want to have a passion for the mission of God, the mission of God being pointing people to Him, seeing people come to know Jesus, making Him famous in this world in an impactful way where people experience Him, have their lives transformed. That is what the mission of God is, to make His glory known from the neighborhoods here in Cincinnati to the nations of the world. If we want to have a passion for that, it starts inwardly. It starts with an experience with God. And so my, my little pitch here today is, is this. In order to inwardly experience a passion for the mission of God, we must have a couple of things here. We must have two things that I think we see in this passage of Scripture that is very much dealing with inwardly what the prophet Isaiah was feeling and dealing with when God called him to be a part of the mission. So, number one, we need to have a proper view of God. And then number two, we need to have a proper view of ourself. So a proper view of God, a proper view of self. Those are the two things we're going to be looking at. So let's look at that first one there, a proper view of God. This is verses 1 through 4, and we're just going to kind of walk through this a little bit. We're just going to take it a little phrase at a time. And if we want to have a proper view of God, we, we need to realize a few things, right? And some of us, this might be like, yeah, man, I learned this in Sunday school a long time ago. But for some of us, it might be a good refresher, right, to see these attributes, these characteristics 
of God. So if we want to have a proper view of God so that we can have this passion, then we need to realize, number one, that he is sovereign. That's verse 1. Look at, look at verse 1 here. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. See that language there? So we open with the shocking news. King Uzziah is dead. Put that on Facebook, right? People be like, what are you talking about? Who is King Uzziah? Like, you know, I, you, some of us might not be up on our uh, Old Testament kings, so let's, let's just take a, a brief moment here to learn that Uzziah was the 10th king of Judah. Judah became the southern kingdom. So there was one kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. They split at one point in time because they couldn't get along. They disagreed on stuff, go figure, right? Things are still the same today. So then you had a northern kingdom of Israel and you had a southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah was the only one that ever had any good kings. <laughs> the northern kingdom, those guys were terrible. They never could get it together. Southern kingdom was hit or miss, but they did have a few good kings, and Uzziah was one of those kings. And for the lion's share of his 52-year reign, he held the throne for 52 years, he was a godly man. He did his best to follow after the Lord. He was highly influenced by the prophet Zechariah. If you remember a couple of years ago, we went through verse by verse the, the book of Zechariah, and that's the same time period, contemporary. And unlike many of the other kings, he never totally departed from the true worship of God. He didn't allow things to come in from the world and taint it. He didn't allow things to kind of, uh, you know, be, be, be confiscated or, or to be uh, blurried. He said, no, listen, this is how you worship God. He followed the law. And under his influence, the southern kingdom of Judah, it had power. It had wealth. It was a world player in, in many regards. It had success. Uh, and it really hadn't enjoyed those things since the kingdom of Solomon since Solomon was ruling the United Kingdom. But however, Uzziah was still an imperfect man. He was a sinful person. He was made prideful by his success late in life. He took for granted the blessings that he had from God, and he made the mistake of offering incense in the temple. And that might not sound like a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to God because he said, listen, you don't do that. That's not the king's job. I call other people to do these things, but not you. And Uzziah was puffed up with pride, and he did this act anyway. And this, this whole uh, disobedience, uh, this whole thing is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, if you would like to write that down and go back and check it out later. But as a result of this sin, Uzziah was stricken with leprosy. And it was a terrible thing. Leprosy is a terrible disease. It makes you unclean, especially in this day and age. You had to walk around covering your mouth if you were out in public, and you had to yell, I am unclean. You had to announce that to the world, and it was very humiliating. So the king had to do that. The king was unclean, and he eventually died with this disease in around about the year 740 B.C. But here's a, here's a quick little, little point there. Listen, disobedience to the Lord is a serious thing. No matter how good you might be at following after him, we should never take him for granted or think that we know better than him. That's one quick lesson there. So again, shocking news, King Uzziah is dead, right? But not the king of the cosmos. 
52 years is an impressive run for an earthly king, but it's nothing when compared to the king of eternity. And I think that that's what we need to take away from why, why is it telling us about this King Uzziah? Well, it's because it is contrasting this earthly king with the heavenly king that we are about to encounter throughout the rest of the passage. But from eternity past, Jesus has been sovereignly, and that word just simply means uh, without help. Right? He answers to no one. He needs aid from no one. He depends upon no one. From eternity past, Jesus has been sovereignly ruling over everything. Absolutely everything from his lofty and exalted throne. Because he is sovereign. He is king. There's not one thing that happens without his knowledge. He is the supreme commander of the angels of heaven. He controls all things seen and unseen. He created it all. It all points to him for his glory. And neither you or I can counsel him on how to do his job. And I think that we need that reminder sometimes. He is sovereign. That's what we need to, to remember. So friends, listen, God's throne will never be abandoned. It will never be abdicated. He will never give that up. It will never be annihilated or defeated. He will always hold his throne. He will never die. He will never vacate that position or lose control of his kingdom. So we need to know up front today that our God is a sovereign God. Number two, he is majestic. If we want to have this proper view, this, this inward passion for missions, we need to know the God of the mission. He is sovereign. And number two, he is majestic. Look at the second half of verse one. It says, with the train of his robe filling the temple. See that beautiful word picture there. We assume that Isaiah, when this, when this happened to him, it's not made clear by, by the text here, but we assume that he was in the earthly temple when he had this experience, when he had this encounter with God, when he had this, this calling. And the temple referred to in verse 1 is, is not the earthly temple, though. It is the heavenly temple. It's, it's not the temple that Solomon built. It is the temple of heaven. And I mention that to bring this next bit of information into crystal clear focus for us because it says that the train of his robe was filling the temple. So if we can imagine how great and grand and gigantic that earthly temple was and to know that the train of his robe, you guys know what a train is, right? The, the robe, robe train, right? We're fashion experts here at First Baptist Mount Healthy. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's the fabric that flows behind, right? And it is, in ancient times, uh, it was considered, you know, the length of the king's train directly corresponded to just how majestic that king was. And in most cases, the king earned more length by being awesome, <laughs> by being a king, by doing king things, right? You know, whatever a king might have been doing, he would just add some length to that train and he would be like, look how majestic and awesome I am. But the Hebrew word here translated in my copy of the scriptures, I'm using the NASB translation. It's different throughout the different translations here. Yours might actually be this one, but the word is better rendered hem, like the hem of your jeans or the hem of your garment. It is the edge of the fabric, the end of the fabric, and you put that hem there so it doesn't fray. 
so it doesn't come apart, right? It looks, it looks good to have a hem, right? That's why people put them there. So that is amazing. Do you see that now, though? Do you see this word picture we're dealing with? Do you see how majestic this actually is? If the robe train indicates how amazing a king is, well, not even the hem of the robe of Jesus can fit into the heavenly temple. That's a big God, right? That's a majestic God. Think about that. Boom, right? Like that is our God. So friends, listen, we must work to not have a small view of our majestic God. Oftentimes, we get trapped into having a tiny view. We're trapped in the here and now and what's only what's in front of us and what we can see. We must work against that. We must fight against that to remind ourselves with little nuggets like this that are all through Scripture of how sovereign and majestic He really is. We can't even begin to fathom. So see His majesty. Stand in awe of Him today because He is majestic. Also, if you want a proper view of God, you've got to understand, number three, he is holy. And as Harry informed me, he, he you know, called an audible, right? He called a play on the fly, changed one of those songs today, only a holy God. I'm like, that's, that's awesome right there, because that is what we're looking at here in verses two and three. It says, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Only here is the seraphim class of angels mentioned in Scripture. There's different classes of angels. You can go into a whole, you know, small group study on that at some point if we really wanted to do that. Uh, you got different classes that you look at with the angelic beings, but the seraphim are only mentioned here. And we, we try to put this picture of them together in our head, and they look crazy to us, right? They got these wings, they cover their eyes, they cover their mouth, like they, they do all these different things. But the word here in Hebrew simply means to burn, or the burning ones. These are the angels that are flying around in the orbit, in the midst of the holiness of God. They are burning ones. It relates them to God's holiness. They are there hovering around him before the throne, and they are declaring eternally, holy, holy, holy is our God. He is Holy, And I heard it said before that when God's holiness goes public, we see his glory. When God shows himself in his holiness, that's where we see his glory. How awesome is that? And if we want to reflect the glory of God to those around us, we must lead with a display of his holiness. We must do that. We must show his holiness through our lives. If we point to the holiness of God, we will point people to the glory of God. And we will see them transformed in his presence if we point them to how glorious he really is. And I found myself asking the question this week, so welcome into Brandon's mind. Do I meditate often enough on the holiness of God? As I was wrestling with this passage and trying to figure out, like, how do I want to approach this? Because it was very clear that the Lord wanted me to be here and to teach on this. I'm just like, okay, Lord, like, how does this fit with mission? And he's like, just trust me. 
And so as I was rolling this over in my head, this question, do I meditate often enough on the holiness of God, kept coming up. And I must confess that I replied to my own question with a no. No, I don't. I'm too easily distracted. I'm just being completely honest with you today. I'm being completely transparent. I'm too easily distracted, too easily pacified by the world most days to even think of such complex things. I think of God, I will pray to him, but oftentimes I don't really lose myself in the awe that I should of how holy and wonderful he is. And in the moments that I do lazily wander into such truth, like, you know, just kind of like going throughout my day, I'm astounded that God even allows me to draw a breath. I'm astounded that he is so holy and I am not, He could squash me like a bug, but he doesn't. He could incinerate me, but he doesn't. He calls me to himself and says, hey, I love you. You're my child. Think about that for a second. In those moments, it just astounds me. He is a perfect creator God, and he pursues not just me, but all of us. He pursues those who are rebellious, a rebellious creation. The Creator still chases after us for His glory. So think about that today. If you are in Christ, you are welcomed into the white-hot holiness of God through the perfection of Jesus. Jesus makes that way for us. He gives us His holiness. He gives us His righteousness. And we are invited in to the holiness of God. We should always stand in awe because he is holy. So if we want that proper view of him, we have to realize that he is holy. Number four, he's powerful. Look at verse four, the beginning of verse four. It says, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. So if God's voice can speak billions of galaxies and life into being, it can most definitely rattle the floorboards a little bit, amen? It can't, right? So friends, listen, the overwhelming power of God is really beyond our comprehension. Even if we could take just how powerful we think he is, how powerful we can imagine he is, and multiply it by the largest quantity we could imagine, it would still fall short of his actual power. Paul tells us, in Ephesians, in that doxology there, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. That is God. And one of the fiercest descriptions of his power that's always equally parts fascinated and terrified me comes from Psalm 97, verses 1 through 6. Listen to the intensity here from the psalmist. He says, the Lord reigns, may the earth rejoice, may the many islands be joyful. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his enemies all around. His lightning lit up the world. The earth saw it and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. A voice that creates and destroys. A presence that comforts and incinerates. I mean, think about this. A light that brings comfort, but also terror 
for the things that it can expose in the darkness of our hearts. This is our God. And he calls you to himself. Look at the power there. He is terribly powerful, yet powerfully loving. It's amazing that he pursues us at all. He is powerful. So if you want a proper view of him, you've got to understand that. Number five, you also have to understand that he is present. He is present with us. Look at what it says there in the remainder of verse four. It says, while the temple was filling with smoke. It's another word picture here. You see this a lot when, when earthly and, uh, you know, fallible, you know, sinful humans are trying to communicate this truth. The Holy Spirit spoke this truth through Isaiah, writing this down, and he's grasping for words, and the Holy Spirit brings these word pictures for a reason to the author so that we can begin to understand them. And we see that the temple is filling with smoke, and the smoke is a symbol of the presence of God. If you've ever been around smoke in a room, does it just kind of like evaporate quickly, or does it permeate everything? It, it permeates everything, right? It will fill up a room quickly. Smoke will. He is with us at all times, is what this picture communicates. That like smoke envelops a room, the presence of God envelops us, and we cannot escape it. And that happens whether we feel him or not. We have to understand that. He is a present God. Even in those lonely and dark times, He is present. He is with us even in the waiting. Even in the times when we feel most alone, that's usually when He's the most active in our lives. And He is just as present for us today as He was for Isaiah in this text that we're studying today. He is a present God. So make no mistake, if we desire to develop and maintain an inner passion for the mission of God, we have to have a proper view of him. And that begins by looking at how sovereign and majestic and holy and wonderful and marvelous he really is. So number two, if we want this passion for mission inwardly so that we can be propelled outwardly to be on mission, we, number two, need to have a proper view of ourself. Proper view of self. Look at verses five through seven. First thing we need to understand is we are sinners. <laughs> Hello, good morning, welcome to church. You're a sinner, right? People probably get tired of hearing that, but listen, I am a one-hit wonder, and it's the gospel. That's what I've got. This is what it says, and it says that we are sinners, each and every one of us. Every person who has ever been born, apart from Jesus Christ himself, the one man who was 100% God and 100% human, yet he was without sin, that's the only one. The rest of us fall into the category of sinner. And that's tough stuff. It's tough stuff to always have to deal with that, but we must confront it. And now that Isaiah has experienced this transforming vision of the majesty of God, He's got this proper view of God. He's, he's standing there beholding God. He had a very sobering realization. He realized real quickly, verse 5, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah real quickly realized where he, he fell in relation to, to this majestic God. Isaiah basically says, oh God, I have no hope. I have no hope here. I am ruined. I am a dirty sinner. The people around me are dirty sinners. God, I've seen the faintest glimpse of you, this tiny little glimpse that you've allowed me to see of you and your glory, and I am doomed in your holy presence. That's what he's saying here. And you know what? He was right. He was right. He stood no chance when it came to the righteousness of God. None of us can. No matter how good we think we are or how many good things that we do or how awesome we might feel in our church attendance and, and activity, none of us can stand before God. He is holy and we are not. We cannot do it on our own merit. Any chance at holiness and redemption that we have, that you or I have, comes from Him giving us that perfection through Jesus, that holiness through Jesus. We're sinners, and we need to understand this. We are great sinners, you, me, all of us, but Jesus is a great Savior. He is a greater Savior than we are, a sinner, and He pursues us because He is a God of mission. We are sinners. And number two, in need of a Savior. Amen. Hallelujah. Look at verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So this is the altar, the offering, where sin offerings were made. And Isaiah, seeing this picture, this angel, this burning one, flies down. And I find it interesting how the angel is a burning one, yet he uses tongs to pick up the coal don't understand that. Little things like that kind of make me rabbit trail sometimes. But he took the, the tongs and he picked up this coal from the altar. And verse 7 says, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Do you see that beautiful picture there? Isaiah cried out to be cleansed inwardly. And God met that need. Isaiah understood quickly that when he encountered God, he was in the presence of God, and God was calling him to be a part of his mission. Isaiah knew that he did not have the credentials uh, himself to be a part of this. So Isaiah's cleansing, it came by blood and fire, and it was verified by the word of the Lord. We see here. He says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. So friends, listen, before we can take the good news of Jesus to others in God's mission, we must first receive that good news ourselves. And that good news is that we are sinners, but we have a great Savior. As Warren Wiersbe wrote, before we pronounce woe upon others, we must sincerely say, woe is me. Right? Right? So if you want to get out here and preach the gospel to people, you need to first preach it to yourself and know every day that you have a great sin problem, but Jesus is the great Savior for you, and you can go and take that life-transforming trans power and, and message to the world. So Isaiah's conviction here led to confession, right? And this confession led to cleansing. God cleansed him for the mission at hand. And it was a painful process. I mean, think about it. He's talking about touching his lips with a burning hot coal. 
that would be terrible. That would hurt so much. And I think the picture here is to present that, yes, this is a very painful process, being cleansed, following after Jesus, allowing him to expose those things in our hearts that we need to confess and turn over to him. And it's not so that we can just feel terrible all the time. It's so that we can be thankful that he is so holy, and yet he still takes an interest in us, enough to cleanse us through his own power. Like Isaiah, many of the great heroes of the faith that we see throughout Scripture saw themselves as sinners and humbled themselves before God. At one point or another in their story, you will see that. Abraham does in Genesis 18. Jacob does in in, uh, Genesis 32. We see Job come to that realization in Job chapter 40. David comes to that realization in 2 Samuel 7. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Peter kind of recognizes that in Luke chapter 5. They're all sinners, but God called them all anyway, and he cleansed them and made them right for the mission. So we need to understand that we are all sinners in need of a great Savior, each one of us. And not just one time on a Sunday morning, but all the time every day is when we need to realize this. If we want to be properly prepped for the mission at hand, what God is calling us into and being a part of his mission, being a part of the Great Commission, we must constantly be drawing near to him. Constantly. And next week I want to look at outwardly, yes, things that we are called to do, but also the impact that that outward outward ministry that we have can have on the world, but also on us personally, and we can see some of that uh, throughout the, the remainder of Isaiah chapter 6 here as well, because he, he answers the call. He says, here I am, send me, as we're going to see, but he says that before he even realizes what the mission actually would cost him, and I think that that is important because we should all have that heart that we are going to say yes to God no matter what may come because he is worth it. So we need to understand that we are all saviors, or we are, we are all sinners in need of a great Savior. So there you have it. If you, if you desire to develop and maintain an inner passion for the mission of God, we must have this proper view of God and a proper view of self. And you might be thinking, this is really rudimentary stuff. Yes, it is. We need to understand this. If we have any hope at all of carrying out the mission of God and seeing fruit from that and and making much of him in this world. We have to have the, the basics, the fundamentals nailed down. We have to have a proper view of God, a proper view of ourselves, but without those perspectives, we're gonna struggle to pursue the difficult task that lays before us. And you might be thinking, okay, great. How do I do this, Brandon? I've got three quick little things for application. I try to make them simple because that's just how I am. I have to think through things in a simple way. So how do we do this? Number one, look for God. Look for him. I mean, that's what Isaiah was doing here, right? I mean, this is what he was doing. He was a man who was purposefully looking for God in his everyday life. I mean, obviously, God can just break through and capture somebody's attention when they're at least expecting it. Look at the Apostle Paul, his Damascus Road experience. He was actively going to murder people for following Jesus, and Jesus just knocked him off his horse, right? But with Isaiah, he's looking for God. 
We see that he is a man after God's own heart. He is seeking him every day on purpose. And this put him into a position to hear from God and respond. So what about you? Are you looking for God on purpose in your life every day? Are you putting yourself into position for him to speak to you, to capture your heart? Are you opening his word and, and allowing it to permeate you and to, to really mold your heart and form you into the image of Jesus? Are you looking for God? Number two, acknowledge your sin. Don't just put it away somewhere and and think I'll deal with that at some point or I'm good, I don't need to deal with a sin problem in my life. When you start thinking of those things, it's a slippery slope. We have to acknowledge sin. And again, this is what we see Isaiah doing. When he was confronted by the holiness and the glory of God, we just looked at it, he immediately confessed his sin, right? He confessed his sin. He said, Lord, I need you. Like, I cannot do this on my own. I am so unqualified. I am a sinner. But also, number three, if you want to be able to do this, you got to respond to God's forgiveness. And we see Isaiah doing that as well. He was cut to the core by the realization of the sinfulness, but he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there, did he? He didn't just roll around on the floor in anguish saying, woe is me, I'm terrible, I can never do this. No, he responded to the grace and the forgiveness of God. He allowed God to raise him up and use him mightily for him in his mission. So, you want to be able to do this? We need to look for God, acknowledge sin, and respond to God's grace and forgiveness. Do those things on purpose. Seek to make that a part of your daily routine. So what about you? Are you looking for him? Are you looking for him today? Are you confessing to him? Are you responding to him? Because friends, listen, if we want to have this inward passion for the mission of God, to join him on mission, to see his glory made known in our neighborhoods and also to the nations, the things that we desire to do as a local church, we want to impact the world around us, be a part of that mission. If we want to do those things, we have to look for him, confess our sin to him, and respond to him daily to be inwardly transformed so that we can be a part of his mission. So where do you stand with that today? What business do you need to take care of with the Lord today so that you can say, I'm in, I'm signed up. I am a disciple of Jesus. I have experienced the mercy of God. I'm ready to go on mission now. Where do you stand with that today? Here in a moment, we're gonna have a time of response. I'll be down front, Ken will be down front. We would love to pray with you if you need to, somebody to pray with. We're gonna have the altar open. If you want to come down and pray uh, for yourself or for others or, or bring somebody down to pray over them and with them, feel free to do that. Uh, or if you just need somebody to come and talk to you at your seat, flag one of us down. We would love to tell you all that we know about following Jesus. So let's pray and respond. Father, thank you for confronting us with your word today. The calling of Isaiah is such a wonderful and terrifying and mysterious, beautiful passage. And we thank you, God, that you have shown us today that we must have a proper view of you. 
And I think sometimes those of us who get lost in the daily grind, we forget just how wonderful and big and holy and powerful you really are. So God, help us to to be reminded of that. Help us to have this proper view of you, but also a proper view of ourselves that we need you, that we are sinners in desperate need of your grace. So God, I just pray today that you would move as only you can. As we prepare to have this time of response, God, I pray that you would be moving and active amongst us. I pray the power of your Holy Spirit would bring people to repentance, bring people to resolve, bring people to rejoice in you. So just be with us as we worship you again here today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.